Hello, welcome to the 14th installment of the Phenotyp Speaker Series. The topic for today's webinar is advances in rare disease diagnosis. The speaker series is brought to you by Phenotips, the world's first genomic health record system, a software and service that makes genetics workflows easy and intuitive. Phenotips incorporates features such as pedigree drawing, standardized symptom capture using the human phenotype ontology, and insights such as differential diagnosis and gene suggestions. Since electronic health records aren't built for genetics, Phenotips fills the gaps by providing a complete suite for genetic medicine. In light of the pandemic, Phenotips is sponsoring this speaker series. I'm your host, Dr. Pavel Buchkovich. I'm the COO and VP of Scientific and Medical Affairs at Phenotips. I'm passionate about improving genetics workflows in the clinic. I have a Lean Six Sigma certification and a PhD in cancer genetics and molecular pathology from the University of Toronto. Besides I guess the obsession, let's call it a healthy obsession with streamlining clinical workflows and genetics. My research interests focused on using next generation sequencing technologies for improving therapies for high risk childhood cancers, developing and validating clinical genetic tests and translational research projects for pediatric stroke, CNS vasculitis and uh, some pediatric brain tumors. We have three wonderful guests joining us today. And we will, we will be picking their brains about the latest and greatest in rare disease diagnosis. We're all well aware um, of the collective impact and burden rare disease have both on patients and on the healthcare system. Historically, uh, there has been a lack of unified direction, policy, education, and knowledge about rare diseases that resulted and continues to result in long and arduous diagnostic odysseys for many rare disease patients. And ultimately, limited and or completely lacking treatment options on the other end. However, over the past decade or so, and even over the last few years, there has been a substantial gain uh, made in addressing some of those gaps through more unified approaches like recognizing rare diseases as an integral component of national and regional healthcare policy priorities. There's been an influx of research and clinical use of diagnostic tools beyond traditional single gene panels like whole genome and whole exome sequencing. Um, whose clinical use, utility, um, you know, funding and reimbursement continue to gain steam. There are new and improved digital health solutions downstream and upstream of genetic testing. And as someone who is optimistic about the future, but at the same time adamant that we could probably be doing more today, I'm pleased to be joined by our guest panelists, Dr. Ellen Thomas, Dr. Marshall Summer, and the returning Dr. Stephen Kingsmore. We're very excited to have you with us today. So welcome. Uh, before we jump into some of the discussions, I think we'll do some housekeeping to inform the audience of the agenda for today. The format of the webinar will be a 50 minute uh, panel uh, discussion, followed by a 20 minute or so question period where we will be taking questions from you um, until about maybe a quarter past the top of the hour. You'll be able to submit your questions through the discussion in the Zoom's Q&A box. And we'll try to take up as many of those questions as we can in those last 20 minutes. Before we get into the first question, we'll ask our panelists to give a brief introduction about their background and beyond maybe their affiliation and credentials, please also maybe let us know uh, and the audience why you chose to work in this specific field. Uh, perhaps uh, Dr. Thomas, you can go first. 
very much, Paul. Yes, um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for the, the invitation to join you today. Um, so I am a clinical geneticist um, in the UK. Um, my clinical affiliation is with Guy's Hospital in London, where I work as an as a, um, honorary consultant in clinical genetics. Um, I have for the last six years worked um, at Genomics England based in London um, and I've worked on the 100,000 Genomes Project and now working um, as both the clinical lead for rare disease and also as the clinical safety officer um, at Genomics England implementing um, our bioinformatics pipeline um, in, the, um, in the NHS for diagnostic use of for genome sequencing and also um, starting to think about some new initiatives in the in the research uh, arena, as well as curating the amazing data set that we have from the 100,000 Genomes Project. Um, I've also been um, working over the last year as a clinical advisor to the genomics unit at um, NHS England and Improvement, uh, which is the commissioning body for uh, genomics um, across the English uh, health service. Um, so that's, that's also been a, a very interesting role in, on the genomics frontline. Uh, so my interest in um, Genomics really predates, as I suspect all, all, all of the participants today do predate genomics and goes back into genetics in the days when we were doing um, single gene testing and really we had much, um, we're many fewer tools in our box, but, um, but the, and it's been an unbelievably exciting decade or two to work in this field and to see the changes happening so quickly and to be able to adopt those and translate those so quickly. So the, the area that I'm, I really focus most of my time on is how do we take the advances that are coming out of science and technology, and how do we fill that gap between turning them into reliable, robust, accountable, useful, um, proven tools which can be used at scale um, in an equitable way um, on the diagnostic front line. So that's where I, I spend most of my time and I find that a very interesting area. So I'm looking forward to unpicking that a bit more um, with you all today. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Summer? Certainly. Uh, my name is Marshall Summer. I've been in this field since about 1985. Started life before that in molecular biology and then in pediatrics and then uh, started out when we were first doing parts of the Human Genome Project here in the States. So that was back in the days when we put two genes on a chromosome. That was a big deal for that year. Um, and then worked through and obviously have watched the development of the uh, draft sequence and then the impact that's had on the field, plus the technological advancements. I'm a clinician by trade, but also I've done a little bit of research here and there over the years. Um, what we're currently have been working on really for the last 10 years is how do you organize the provision of services and care in a field where the um, informatics and the technology are pretty much overturning almost every other night, it seems. Uh, I did a little math the other day, and uh, if you look at the number of diseases where we have described a genetic change, that matches up to a phenotype, it's five to 10 a week. Uh, and so how do you practice medicine? How do you take care of patients? How do you provide you know, care standards um, when you're, a lot of your patients have a condition that hasn't even been seen before? That to me is a, it's an exciting and fascinating challenge. Um, we built a clinical unit here. We see about 10,000 patients a year in our clinical unit for genetics and rare disease here. And I would say, um, you know, we've been trying to apply a lot of informatics tools that uh, you don't necessarily see in other fields, just simply because they um, have a pretty good handle on everything they're doing. Ours keeps changing. So for me, taking that, making sure the patients have access in a meaningful way, you know, we've learned so much, we're seeing so much, but we're continuing to learn so much. 
How do we make sure that patients who need access to diagnostics and therapeutics are actually getting that and getting it in a way that's meaningful to them? So um, we embraced telemedicine a few years ago, it ended up being rather timely considering last year uh, with the COVID diagnosis, but we're actually, um, we're, even before that, we're seeing about 20 to 30% of our patients digitally. And of course, now it's about 50 to 60%. And uh, I, it's a trend I like because for patients with rare disease and genetics conditions, they're often medically fragile. And I think some of these new care models we can work on are really better for patients. So for me, it's a great time. There's a lot of interesting things going on. And I really appreciate the opportunity to participate on this panel. Well, we're, we're, we're happy to have you. Uh, Dr. Kingsmore, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, nice to be here. Good morning, everybody. I'm Stephen Kingsmore. I'm the president and CEO of Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine. We are a six-year-old research institute, and our mission is to democratize genomes in pediatric care. We're embedded inside one of the largest children's hospitals in the U.S., Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego in Southern California. And our main focus has been on introducing rapid whole genome sequencing for newborns and infants in intensive care units. We've been doing that now for about a decade and at Rady Children's for about six years. And we actually now provide rapid whole genome sequencing services to 71 children's hospitals around North America. How did I get into the field? Well, Marshall took us back to 1985. I have to go earlier than that. The field chose me, I didn't choose it. So I was 17, I was then in Northern Ireland and I won a scholarship to go to the Weizmann Institute in Israel. And there my research project was studying a mouse called beige. Beige actually has Chediak-Higashi syndrome. It's an immune deficiency disease. It's a single locus genetic disease. And 20 years later, I positionally cloned that together with a team at the University of Florida. And so since those positional cloning days, I've kind of stayed in that field in various form factors ever since, leading me now to Rady Children's Hospital. Thank you for that. So we've, we've heard about how, uh, sort of even in your introductions, how genetics and genomics has rapidly evolved, and especially over the last little while. Dr. Summer, you were mentioning, uh, you know, the role of digital care and telemedicine sort of more recently um, uh, in, in, in this space. What, what are the current diagnostic uh, journeys look like for patients? I guess for a typical patient, if you can even use typical patient in, in the sense of a rare disease, uh, rare disease patient odyssey. Well, it's, it's actually interesting. There's been a lot of effort over the last um, decade to decrease, we call it the diagnostic odyssey. And it's that journey that patients begin when they first sense something's not quite right, doesn't quite fit the norm, and then begins to seek a diagnosis. Um, there's actually, um, there's a global commission I'm part of that works on that. And we have folks from NHS as well as actually from uh, the Canadian programs in the US and other places around the world. So the typical journey these days, if I had to kind of outline it very quickly, there, there's kind of two or three scenarios. One is there's a highly specific 
clinical findings, something like an abnormal newborn screen or um, elevation in ammonia, something that gives a really, really strong clue where you should go looking for diagnosis. And then those typically lead fairly quickly uh, to you know, find, figuring out what that patient may have, you know, whether it's through uh, molecular analysis, biochemical testing, um, et cetera. There's a, another scenario that we'll see in pediatrics where a child isn't developing properly, um, whether it's speech and language, motor skills, combination. And there you have a complex interplay between the environment and um, the, you know, whatever the genetics going on there. And what's interesting is historically, when we would look at these patients, we would maybe get around 20% of them we could get a solid diagnosis on. With the advent of next generation sequencing and a lot of the tools out there now, you know, that number is starting to approach 50, sometimes 60%, depending on which study groups you look at for that. And what we're doing there is we're not changing that patient's therapeutic modalities and probably not changing their outcome too much. What we're really trying to do there is get a why for the family. And sometimes that why is a combination of both environmental factors and genetic factors. Um, one of the other things, though, that we're seeing very commonly in that clinical um, progress is our answer is often uh, maybe. We'll find, uh, you know, we'll do a next generation sequencing. We'll find something that looks like a culprit. And then we have to walk the family through the, well, it might be this. We're not 100% sure this is a new change. We don't see it anywhere else. It seems likely there's a good story for it. But there's that sort of maybe category. We used to call that the interpretive dance part of clinical genetics. Uh, I, hope, I hope that does not offend my colleagues, but some days it kind of feels a little bit like that. And then the third group are adults. And we see them in a bunch of different flavors. Obviously in the cancer field, there's sort of a whole field of genetics there that's a little bit different from the uh, area I deal in, which is more kind of the everything else. But you'll have an adult that either has picked up an odd clinical finding or just feels something isn't right or something that's never quite worked out quite right. And they'll seek diagnosis. And that's a little bit similar to those kids that aren't developing properly, then also can take a long time. You'll see a number thrown around that the average time to diagnosis can run five to seven years. I would say that number has probably changed significantly, certainly for patients with very clear findings. That number can be you know, a week or two um, or sometimes even days, um, but there are still patients where it takes a long time to sort out. Dr. Thomas, do you think the journey from the practitioner perspective has also changed in the last uh, in the last few years, and, and if so, how? Yes, absolutely, and I think um, I'd like to um, pick up on one of the um, from where Dr. Summer left off there, really, with the timing of diagnosis, which I think has been one of the really crucial things that we've seen genomic tests coming much earlier in the life course um, in, in recent years. And we frequently now see diagnoses being made, you know, in the first weeks of life, possibly even um, prenatally through fetal testing. Um, and I think that um, that experience for a family is very different from the experience of living with health problems, which gradually appear and then gradually become, it becomes clear what the child is dealing with before you know what you what the what the explanation is and having an explanation before you've gone through that process of seeing things evolve 
it's not necessarily better or worse for an individual family, but it's certainly different and it can affect the way that um, families feel about the bonding process and it can affect, it certainly affects the sorts of conversations that we're having with, with patients. And one of the big things that we are very aware of is that having a genomic diagnosis is massively helpful for explaining, for predicting, um, you know, for, for predicting the chances of future children having in the family having the same problem, in increasing numbers of cases for deciding what the appropriate treatment is. But actually, it, in, in terms of predicting what will actually happen to an individual child over the course of their lifetime, we're still, we've still got large confidence limits. We still can't say exactly what's going to happen with a child. And so having that information about the diagnosis at a phase where we don't necessarily have very concrete information, I think, is a challenge that we need to recognise for our patients. And early diagnosis is, um, has massive benefits and I think is a very, very important development in genomics. And you know, those 20 year diagnostic odysseys that we've all seen our patients go through oh, yeah. are tremendously traumatic for, for families. And, um, and you know, it's, 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 a, it's a, a wonderful thing having early diagnosis. But I think we as practitioners are really having to adapt the way that we think about and speak about the diagnostic process and the outcomes of that process. And I think the other reflection I would have is that when you see patients now who are maybe in their 20s and have never had a diagnosis and have had tests, you know, they, they had a karyotype and they had an array and they had a panel test and they had an exome and they had a genome and they still don't have a diagnosis. And that's beginning to feel quite unfair. And I think it's, you know, not all of those patients will necessarily have a single gene condition. Some of them may have a condition that hasn't been, that hasn't been discovered yet. But for those, for those patients, I think we, we just need to remember that um, we've made huge advances but we still have plenty of exciting advances still to come and that patients encounter those advances at different points in their lives and that the way that the way that the impact that that has on people will be very different depending on their journey through these advancements. And, and I guess with those uh, with those earlier diagnoses uh, happening with sort of the current technologies and methodologies that we have and with whole genome sequencing becoming more mainstream. What uh, I'd like to hear from all of you, perhaps, what do you think we can expect in terms of diagnostic outcomes uh, in the coming years? Maybe all right. Start off with Dr. Kingsmore. <laughs> sure. Um, so our focus, as I said, is really on infancy. Uh, so newborns who immediately have symptoms and who are admitted to intensive care units, uh, infants and older children with the same. And in that group, we find about 15% have a single lattice genetic disease. Uh, about one in three children that we undertake uh, rapid whole genome sequencing on, we diagnose unequivocally as having a genetic disease. And then as Marshall has pointed out, there's a second fraction where we have findings, but it's not black and white, it's gray. And in those children, uh, this has dramatic impact. Uh, pretty much 100% of them, it impacts their clinical management. In fact, even in the negative cases, it impacts their management since we have fairly effectively, uh, well, more, more or less substantially reduced the probability of them having a genetic disease, allowing physicians to redirect their focus, their diagnostic focus on other etiologies. So um, th that's the area I'm most familiar with, and one where this is starting to become standard of care uh, across the first world. 
Yeah. We end up dealing a lot with what I would call the, uh, once you found it, what do you do with it? Uh, or as my, my wife, who's a pediatrician says, you do why, I gotta do what's next. And um, one of the things that's interesting is, like I said, you can get into lumping and splitting with these genetic diagnoses. Having the diagnosis absolutely is a huge benefit for the families. If nothing else, it kind of gives them a place of stability to kind of put their feet on saying, okay, we build from here to figure out what's going on. One of the things that's made genetics and rare disease such a different medical field than others, if you look at most classic medical fields, you're expected to be as a physician or a caregiver in the field, sort of a master of all the knowledge in your domain. You know, you, you expect a surgeon to know where all the bones are in the hand that they're working on and how it all connects. And in uh, the field, at least the modern field of medical genetics, that's no longer possible. You know, that's, I think the last count, we're probably at north of 8,000 different um, links between a genetic change and a clinical phenotype. And it grows, like I said, every week. So we're presented instead with this rapidly evolving picture where we may find a single gene genetic change. And sometimes those are very actionable because they're in things we know what to do with, or it's in a system that you can um, impact upon, but oftentimes they're in systems where it's maybe a developmental gene or something that is a controller of other genes or something that has impacted a locus. And sometimes the pen's already written much of the story, particularly during fetal development. So for me, it's a very different type of medicine to practice. We are much more reliant on uh, informatics, on the use of informatics. I would say the young physicians coming in now are probably better at doing using search engines than almost uh, any textbook that you'd run across because the textbooks are really kind of, frankly obsolete the day they're printed. So it's an exciting time, but it's also got its challenges because there's a lot of things we, you know, there's the what you know, there's what you don't know, and then there's what you don't know you don't know. And that's still kind of the biggest piece of our uh, pie graph right now in the field. I, my colleagues may not agree with that, but that's kind of where I see it going. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. And I think the, um, you know, the, that we will continue to see increases in diagnostic yield with new technologies and new pipelines and bigger data sets and better matching of data around the world and um, new types of tests coming with you know, all, all transcriptomics and proteomics and metabolomics and all of these things coming along to add new things into our, into our armory. I think the pattern that we've seen has been that the, 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 the you know, getting from a, a clinician selected single gene or small panel of genes to a gene agnostic, usually parents and child exome or genome was a huge, huge yeah. chunk of, of extra diagnostic power. Probably that was, that might be the biggest single step that we're going to encounter and possibly, I may be wrong, but I have a suspicion that possibly some of the other technologies that we're going to see will each eat into the remaining unmade diagnoses, but each of them will possibly add, you know, add, add you know, it would be very interesting to see which of them add the most, but we should probably modify, at least modify our expectations such that we're expecting each of them to sort of add another layer but not necessarily quite as big as some of the, the jumps that we've already seen with the with the technology because you know you don't normally see jumps that big with a new with a new technology i think that was a that to me that feels as if that was an unusually 
big advance in an unusually small space of time and we may not be able to recapitulate that but we will undoubtedly be able to eat further and further into the remaining diagnoses with all of the new things that are that are coming online and that we can see coming down the pipe from the research world over the next decade or so. Yeah, and hopefully we can talk a little bit about those things coming down the pipe uh, as well uh, later on today. Um, maybe Dr. Summer, what role do you think uh, structured and curated genomic data uh, will play in undiagnosed diseases? Uh, it's actually one of the biggest issues out there. And, then, and I'm actually going to, and I'm not going to give you guys a plug, but I am going to talk about the fact that we need structured um, phenotypic data as well, too. And that's actually key for progress in the field. Um, one of the problems we've had is um, so many technologies have evolved so quickly. So many companies have come, some have gone, some are coming, you know, and then you see coalescing uh, that the reporting structures around data are still pretty vague. Um, you know, a lot of things that might be significant changes get reported out as variants of unknown significance. So it's kind of like buyer beware, it's up to you uh, to deal with this thing. Uh, one thing we actually, a project we just recently completed working with one of the large EMR providers um, was actually doing a variant capture that captures it tied back into you know, the reference sequences for the genome. So it's actually got a web link back in that. So is the interpreter for that changes. One of the most important things I see though around curation of genomic data is that the centers doing the sequencing um, contribute the variants they find back into the common data pools um, and that those are properly referenced so that, you know, if we're going to fill in all the blank spots, which is going to take a long time to do, we need to know where the variations are. And then of course, as we start testing new groups, new populations, um, new ethnic groups, we find variants we didn't know about before things like that. But when I talk about phenotypic, uh, the phenotypic data, that is key as well curated genomic data. If you don't know what the physical manifestation of the genetic change is, it's very hard to know, you know, what the significance from that. And it's also hard to compare when someone finds the same change in another patient. So for me, um, good genotype data without a phenotype is like the world's biggest lever with no fulcrum. You just kind of wave it around, but you can't do much with it. And I think traditionally as clinicians, you know, 20 years ago, we used to do all this wonderful phenotyping in great depth and with great expertise. And then we would scribble it down on a piece of paper in illegible writing and lock it in a cupboard. And watching the watching clinicians realize over the last five to 10 years that actually that won't do. <laughs> it's been a really interesting process. And the, um, at, at the beginning of that 100,000 Genomes project in the UK, I think the number of clinicians, for example, who'd heard of the human phenotype ontology could probably have been you know, written on one rather small piece of paper. And by, by, by the end of the project, everybody, we had a thousand clinicians around the country regularly phenotyping their patients in HPO and submitting that data, those detailed phenotypes with anything from kind of one to 30 HPO terms, depending on how complex the phenotype was. And we've now got HPO terms in routine use across the NHS um, as a method of um, or comparing and describing phenotypes. And that goes straight, that translates directly into the bioinformatics pipeline. It, it translates directly into research. Um, and it's been a huge, um, it's been a huge change. And actually it's been one that clinicians have adapted to quite straightforwardly and has not, you know, 
a, a few people didn't quite get it at the beginning, but people, but they caught on incredibly quickly. And um, I think we've sort of won that one now. I think that I think it's um, it's just that's just what one does. In in anybody who works with rare disease knows that that's what you do. Um, and that has been a really big change and a, a really powerful change in the way that we work, um, enabling all sorts of um, both diagnostic and research advances. And we're fighting that battle on this side of the pond. We'll win it, but um, it's it's still pretty spotty over here. That's that's one huge advantage, particularly with your hundred thousand genomes project. Having that tight type phenotype data is just absolutely priceless. Yeah, and I think we were we were very lucky with the way that the project has been implemented across the system. That it wasn't it it was a. It was a project where patients joined it from all sorts of different centers and hospitals and clinics around the place. So it wasn't something which was only accessed by obviously the, the, the top experts in the very rare conditions absolutely threw themselves into it, but all sorts of other people who were not normal would not normally be in that very tight sort of group of top experts were also taking part in the project and also had to learn to work in HPO. And so we obviously we haven't reached every corner of the NHS at the moment because that takes time, but we've certainly reached uh, reached a you know a lot of corners of the NHS now with uh, through the project, which has been a really good foundation for the for the test requesting that's now happening as part of the um the the, the um genomic medicine service. And that actually leads me to the to the next question. Uh, I guess regarding HPO or these sort of structured ontologies for phenotyping, um, and and we've we've touched a little bit now and also differences of their uh, of of their usage within the UK and and maybe across across the pond here in Canada and the US. Dr. Kingsmore, maybe can you tell us a little bit what you think uh, it might take to make these ontologies like the HPO more mainstream in the US? Well, traditionally um, we we have a divergence where genetics invented its own ontology with HPO, uh, which went somewhat against the medical mainstream. Uh, and we still have a disconnect between that medical mainstream with uh, ontologies such as SNOMED uh, and others and, and HPO. So one of the urgent items obviously is to bridge those two. So non-genetics, structured phenotypers are using a different ontology and a different framework and are you know, massively uh, more complex than what HPO currently is. So that's a big gap is that HPO is a very slim vocabulary with a limited ability to express the complexity of human phenotype. Um, another issue for all of the ontologies is they were not really built for math. Um, I'm not sure that we can fix that. I'm not sure that we can undo the fact of how they were derived, but they fundamentally were not built to perform math. And that's ultimately their role is to perform pattern recognition, uh, to use AI type approaches to automate much of the searching that we do currently. So, couple of drawbacks. The other one then is that <clears throat> by and large, we're grabbing phenotypes from medical records. And at least in the US, the use of electronic medical records has been mandated for a long time. And that has come with a kind of uh, medical sloppiness that general uh, pediatricians, I have to be very careful what I say, physicians in general, have started to adapt to um, 
not actually putting in the medical record their full history and physical. Yeah. They're more driven by the need, which is audited, to meet the requirements for billing. Uh, and so even though we have good ontologies and even though we have powerful natural language processing tools, we find that the use of things like cut and paste frustrate our ability to get a highly detailed phenotype from the medical record. <clears throat> so in some manner, we need to reinvigorate what used to happen whenever I was a, a young boy, which was uh, really recording every phenotype that we're seeing in a patient diligently in the medical record so that it's actually part of that record. Yeah, but, do you see it the same way from, from your perspective? It's sad but true, yes. So um, one of the things I spent a lot of time with also are natural history studies, um, where you're trying to collect data on patients over the years. And what I find is there's little to no standardization across these different um, programs. They all tend to be kind of uh, in a one uh, type studies where they come up with their own set of descriptions and things. And you know, recently we we're in a project where we we're trying to figure out what to use. And for one study, you needed to use uh, C-Disc, SNOMED, um, ICD-10, um, and HPO. And the problem is when you start trying to pull all these things together, each one does different things well, um, but they, none of them actually do them all very well. And then just getting people to agree on the definitions uh, for things. And I, I definitely agree with Dr. Kingsmore around the impact in the states anyway of the electronic medical record. To be honest, most of the early EMRs were derived around billing systems. So the kind of intent and the structure is designed around capturing those elements that will drive reimbursement. A lot of them were evolved in intensive care units. Um, when you try to adapt something like that, to the complexities of genetic disease, genetic diagnosis, or actually just general medicine in, uh, in the field, uh, they really aren't that well adapted to capturing detailed and reproducible information that's more importantly extractable in a consistent fashion. Um, we did a project with about 300,000 electronic medical records with some early DNA data uh, back at Vanderbilt when I was there. And one of the things we found was the DNA data was just fine, but actually trying to go through and consistently pull groups of patients um, out of the electronic medical record who had commonalities. Typically, you could do a first pass, but then you still had to do mostly hand curation. And a lot of the electronic notes were very, they were kind of data deserts, to be honest. Um, Dr. Thomas, you, you mentioned that the UK has had um, more success in adopting the HPO or, or these sorts of ontology standards. Um, how do you think it'll become even more mainstream in the UK? And, and what's sort of the biggest uh, challenge in, in the existing, that the existing ontologies need to fill in order to, uh, in order to be even more widely used? Well, I definitely recognize all of the challenges that have just been articulated by, by the other panelists. And certainly, you know, billing in the UK is not based around HPO either. You know, we, we, SNOMED is, 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 is very wide, in very widespread use and translating between HPO and SNOMED is a real headache. Um, so it's, yes, we definitely recognize, recognize that. Um, and I think the other thing which has tripped us up a bit when we've gone really, um, you know, when we, we've really tried to roll this out at, at, at greater, um, 
depth is that is versioning um, because you end up with with the clinician in in one HPO tool and the lab in another HPO tool and the clinician saying I can definitely see this HPO term and the lab saying no it doesn't exist my pipeline won't take it and and it's it's those those sorts of things because I think because because there are you know there are different systems using different versions they update at different times and you know move the, the move towards standardization of systems and processes is brilliant but it's knotty and there, is, there are all sorts of levels of standardization and all the time that you have different systems and different pipelines and different paces of adoption of updates and so on then you have you do have these things and it's surprising i've seen a surprising amount of sort of email traffic going backwards and forwards about you know about the details of well it, no this hbo term doesn't quite capture it and i can't find that one in your ontology and you know those sorts of things so definitely um yeah there's definitely still some some work to do i think I'd be curious to, if I could, I'll actually throw this to my two colleagues to see what they say, but one of the things we've been trying to do is do more image capture. Um, if done properly, they're relatively objective. Um, also, when you're starting to invoke machine learning in the diagnostic process, um, it gives you a little bit more of a bit of, I'd say more objective data set to start from. When I've tried to, in the past, apply machine learning to building diagnostic tools, it's it's the old garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have rock solid phenotype data, it's very consistent. It's very hard to build a predictive model. Have you all seen the same thing? I confess that we, we have not really done too much in that area, Marshall. We have been doing the best that we can with pattern recognition predicated yeah. <clears throat> on HPO. Uh, and seeing what's the maximum that we can get out of a medical record and is that good enough but I do think that there is very high density of data both in imaging studies and functional studies um, and that we should be able to abstract uh, many different data fields that would be highly structured and quantitative and followed longitudinally and so I'm very excited about the potential to do that. Um, right now, I confess we're largely doing that with specific queries rather sure. than um, uh, have an elegant solution. But I think it's a very exciting uh, future for the field. Yes, we I, I, we're in a similar similar situation. We have not cracked the you know the collection. The, the, the production, collection, storage, and information governance of images at scale alongside genomic data at the current point. Um, it's definitely on, you know, obviously on the to-do list and something we've been, you know, keen to um, keen to, to, to crack, but um, it's not trivial and it's not something where we have a data set that that, that could support that, that kind of um, image analysis at, at this point. We've, we've got a project. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Marshall. Uh, I, let me just say something very briefly. Um, one, of the, one of the areas that fascinates me right now is that in general, in uh, infant cardiovascular surgeries for congenital heart disease, we're building 3D models now, 3D printing yeah. models of the heart in prep for surgeries. And so intrinsically, we have 3D image data that's incredibly granular in terms of its ability to 
to describe way beyond traditional nosology or, or semantics. Uh, and so wouldn't it be awesome if we could leverage that really in, in that field, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, I'll give you a heads up on something we're trying to get done. We'll see how it goes. We've got a couple of projects. One, we've been building an atlas of imagery around known patients with known diagnosis. You know, whether, you know, things like Down syndrome, DeGeorge, things like that, sort of the basics. And then applying some machine learning to that, which actually was fairly successful. We've gotten a couple of uh, nice things coming out of that. We're trying something a little different though, which is the idea of a three-dimensional growth chart where using imagery to build a three-dimensional shell for the child and then try to build what's a normal shell and what's not a normal shell as a way to kind of start to maybe catch patients who might not fit, but also, as you would say, come back and do pattern recognition. You know, for instance, patients with uh, lysosomal storage disease would have actually looks like a very particular shell that they would grow into or and you can even track uh, therapeutics that way too as well too i'd be curious to see what y'all think of something like that i mean i think this is the future right uh we've been working on a completely different project to show muscular dystrophy right and one yeah. of the things that's really struck me and i never realized was how quantitative they are that these children get pulmonary function tests they get echocardiograms once a year, twice a year, they have standardized measures, time to rise from sitting, time to walk 10 meters, uh, just fabulously structured data. And, you know, so how do we start to move into this area uh, and really utilize that data? Because right now we still view genetic disease as entities <laughs> rather than thinking about them as, no, we've, we've narrowed it down to a collection of things that we call a syndrome, but within that there's still tremendous heterogeneity, and we need to better understand trajectories. You know, ultimately, who are the kids that we need to be very aggressive with and early with in terms of interventions versus those who will have a more benign course? I think if you can't do that, evaluating a therapy or trying to just you know figure out what's the best way to take care of it becomes a very difficult you know problem. You know, there's enough variability in these patients to begin with without having that trajectory. Like you said, you know, whether it's around growth or muscle development or, I mean, what we learned from cystic fibrosis with the really tight use of pulmonary function tests, you know, it gives you a way to say, okay, is this making a difference? Can I move the needle here? Yeah, I just have one more comment. This is something I'm really hung up on right now. We collect 3.2 roughly billion, well, it's probably more like 2.9 billion data points from a genome. And then we go in with a phenotype, which is typically three terms or five terms, or maybe, <laughs> wow, it's 15 terms. And they're qualitative. They're not even quantitative. They're qualitative. And we think that that's, that, that makes sense to us, right? And, and so the, the real picture is our phenome ought to be more complex then our genome, our genome is finite, the phenome's not. And so we're gonna look back on this era and just go, what were you thinking, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the things that we send to the laboratories we work with, our patient has delays in development and poor socialization skills. That's probably the most common thing that gets sent out. 
So you've got two insanely vague terms compared against, as you say, 2.9 billion bits of information. Ellen, are y'all doing any better? <laughs> well, I think, no. Um, <laughs> I think the, um, one, of the, one of the challenges here is that I mean, one of the things that we did as part of the 100,000 Genomes Project is try to define in some detail what were the data points that we would like to collect in each group of conditions. So what would you collect in a paediatric developmental disorder? What would you collect in an adult with a cardiac disorder and so on? And we spent some time with some experts really, really sort of getting down into the detail of what those might look like. But the problem was then that we ended up with, um, with I think maybe 50 or 100 different sort of models of what you might want in different circumstances. Each of those is probably not quite detailed enough to do the things that you've both just been talking about, but was too detailed actually for anybody to get a handle on it at scale. So we didn't end up, we, it ended up being a bit patchy because we tried, we tried for more than the system could cope with supplying. But even if we'd got it, it wouldn't have been enough to do to match the level of detail that we got in the genome. So we pitched it somewhere in the middle and didn't quite end up at, at either end. So I think it's it is, you know, I think one of the one of the really interesting things at the moment is, is you know, the, the, the contrast between some of the really big, broad initiatives that are going on where, you know, things like better databasing and so on, which just help everything throughout the entire um, ecosystem versus the really in-depth bit, which is the things that Dr. Kingsmore was talking about, where you take some, you take a muscular phenotype and you get your quantitative data and you can really go deep. And trying to get both of those things served by the same system, you know, most systems probably at the moment do are better in one, one dimension or the other. I would say, and I would say we're probably more in the broad than we are in the deep in most cases, although we obviously have individual experts in the UK who are very, very deep indeed and have all sorts of amazing data that they can put alongside the genome data, but that tends to be sort of little slices rather than being across the whole of the breadth and filling out to the point where we've got the breadth, the depth across the breadth, I think is a, another organisational and um, and functional and you know scientific challenge, which which is yes, it's going to take us a little bit longer to crack, but absolutely agree with its importance. It's funny. Go ahead. Sorry, Stephen. Again, I apologise. Uh, oh. Zoom sucks, doesn't it? Um, a critical driver that we haven't talked about, and that's going to drive all of us, whether we like it or not, is the emergence of hundreds of new gene therapies for conditions. And that's gonna differentiate our field and we're not gonna control it, right? So the moment you have an effective gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy, that drives the field and the management of those patients. And that's gonna drive our phenotyping and that's gonna drive our, our molecular diagnostics and our whole approach. And that's the most exciting thing I think for genetics is it's moving from being a descriptive field to a therapeutic field where it will be routine for us to intervene. And I agree with Marshall. We, we're not going to have great uh, immediate therapies for fixed structural defects, but for so much of, of physiology, there still is a lot of plasticity. Um, and, and so that's going to be this huge segue, is we're going to need to rewrite our field predicated on the indications for these very expensive, highly targeted therapies many of which are focused on variants, not diseases, variants. Um, it's gonna just completely change the way we, we think about things. Oh, I, I think it's already changing, changed it. Um, 
you know, if, I just, one of the things I look at is, okay, what things can you get for free? Because that usually tells you there's an economics behind it. So for instance, in lysosomal disorders and things where there is a gene therapy available, it's very, in the States, it's kind of a good way to follow the market is you can get free testing for all of those very easily. You know, so if the therapy is worth a couple of million dollars to a company, they don't mind spending a few hundred dollars on a DNA diagnostic. I'm a fan of genome testing and broader testing, please don't get me wrong there. But I, I think absolutely, you know, it's 50% uh, of the approved drugs coming out of FDA or for an orphan or rare disease indication every year. Um, now that's from a population standpoint, it's very disproportionate. It's a much smaller group. But you know, the, if you look at the acceleration of the number of available therapies and particularly when they start to generalize some of the vector developments around gene therapy. So you don't have to, you know, if you've got an effective system, you don't necessarily have to redo the whole process for everyone. I think it's, it's an exciting time. I, I was going to bring up one point, I guess it, it related to the finite genome uh, and maybe Dr. Thomas, you can start us off with this because you also talked about how uh, sort of genome sequencing was a big leap in, in, in sort of diagnostic outcomes in the way uh, the way patients are, the rates at which patients are diagnosed. How big of an impact do you think uh, sort of more research into the non-coding regions of the genome and, and how that will be utilized in the diagnostic impact and translational research and, and, and maybe, you know, genetic uh, therapies in the future? Yeah, I'm... I, no, we don't know yet, obviously, how many of the remaining diagnoses are non-coding. It's going to be absolutely fascinating you know, when we get the data sets big enough to really get a handle on the non-coding space. I think it will be very exciting and it will undoubtedly yield more diagnoses, more understanding of gene regulation, more opportunities for therapeutic targets. So it's definitely an area which we can see um, accelerating. I think the thing that, I've, that I'm finding very interesting is the, the question of how we then really operationalize the non-coding space for diagnostic purposes, because it's huge. It's absolutely huge compared with what we, what we do now. Um, and we're just, we're starting at the, you know, I think pipelines around the world are now where, where the data has been generated. So where it's a whole genome rather than a whole exome. Pipelines are starting to use data about specific known variants where somebody has done some very detailed individual work on that variant in some lab that proves that that variant is relevant. And we're starting to pick those out of the, the non-coding soup and use those in the diagnostic context. So we're, we're nudging into it in the diagnostic world, but to get to the point where we're routinely examining the non-coding space while making life, while not completely swamping the manual review process at the end of the, at the end of the diagnostic pipeline. I think, you know, for the, for the, the medium term foreseeable future, we need expert human beings on the end of our automation. And those expert human beings are, you know, whether they are clinical scientists or clinicians, the model is different in different health systems, but they play an absolutely key role in ensuring that the data that we are using to look after our patients is high quality data with sufficient evidence to, to have those decisions and, um, and increasingly therapeutic decisions as well as understanding based on them. So for those, for those individuals who are receiving the outputs of our automation, we have to do this in a way which allows us to allows the data still to be tractable by those people 
without you know without suddenly throwing throwing ourselves open so i think it's going to be a sort of nibbling into the non-coding space and i think we are taking our first nibbles in the diagnostic world now which is brilliant and you know it's wonderful that we're making more diagnoses we certainly had certain conditions like some of the retinopathies for example in the 100,000 genomes project where a whole whole groups of patients had relatively um, you know, not common, but, you know, in rare disease terms, common non-coding variants, which were the explanation for their conditions. And um, it's really helpful having that information and being able to feed that into diagnostics for situations where you would always have missed that up till, up till the, the genome point. Um, but, um, but I think the, the process of, of accrediting and um, industrialising those insights has to be done thoughtfully. Would you say it's similar in terms of understanding the methylome? And I guess I, I pose also the question to everyone, how often are currently methylation-based testing uh, ordered today? And, and, um, and sort of what are the barriers for that to increase? Uh, I, I would say we're using methylation testing in what are more case-specific um, situations where there's clinical suggestions um, that you would have a, uh, you know, something around a Prader Willie's Angelman type thing, or, um, you know, take your pick on the ones where methylation is shown to be a Beckwith Wiedemann. Um, we'll order it more in that range as opposed to a generalized screening test at this point in time. I, I don't know if others are doing the same, but I think that's the sense I get of what's going on stateside. Yeah, same in the UK. And I think it's very, it's quite similar really to the way in which we think about RNA, isn't it? That at the moment we'll quite often take a plus five splice variant and do, you know, do some RNA work in order to demonstrate whether that is having an impact. And we'll do this, it's very similar with methylation. As you say, we'll take a patient where we have a clinical suspicion and do a specific methylation test. And that's, that. those are the things that are routinely happening in the diagnostic context. In the research context, we've absolutely thrown the gates wide, and we're doing whole, method, whole genome methylomes and whole genome transcriptomes, and those um, and those are yielding all sorts of fascinating insights and signatures and um, and understanding of the of what what's going on in some of these these rare disorders. But they're not; those have not hit; they've not got past that sort of translational um, that process to really find their place in routine diagnostics at the current time. I would say. Um, yeah, I think the basic science needs to catch up, right? So it's an area where the technology has kind of outpaced the clinical science. And so, yeah, we can measure methylation all over the genome, but it's really tough outside of those specific disorders that Marshall yeah. mentioned to know what the heck to do with that. You know, we're starting to see it in, in pediatric brain cancers, where the methylation array is probably the best molecular tool to use in these kids to say what type of tumor they have and how they should be managed. But that's that's a fairly exceptional case. I think the, the place where I think it might hit diagnostics sort of neck or first in rare disease is probably the research on the um, on the methylation, genome-wide methylation signatures in the histone modification conditions. So for example, where Kabuki syndrome, if you do the whole genome methylation, you get a characteristic signature. And then it's an extra, it's an extra piece of phenotypic information essentially that the patient has that genome-wide methylation profile, and that helps you to discriminate if you've got a clinical suspicion of a condition as to whether that whether you're in the right territory, and therefore, for example, whether your rare variant of unknown significance is then likely to be your diagnosis. So I can definitely see those very specific instances 
getting to the diagnostic pathway quicker than the sort of slightly more um, speculative um, uses of, the, of these of these genomes. I, I can't see us doing a whole a whole genome methylome when we don't know what we're looking for in the you know in, in the very near future. And especially since uh, the methylome will also be tissue specific in terms of uh, in terms of what you get. So targeting the right I guess organ system or tissue within that sort of diagnostic process will be uh, sort of another challenge I guess to overcome to know whether the phenotype that one might be displaying is actually associated also within that within that same uh, tissue. And your, to... and your choices are going to kind of be limited to either a cheeks a cheek cell or a white blood cell. And you know if you're looking at something affecting development of the brain and stuff, I'm not sure exactly how relevant those are going to be. That is certainly true. I, I wanted to switch gears uh, a little bit and. Um, perhaps, Dr. Sommer, since you mentioned your wife is a pediatrician, this question can go first. Uh, I am too, you... actually. So, I'm, I'm... Oh, I see. Perfect. Yeah. What do you think the role of primary care physicians uh, is or will be in the rare disease patient sort of journey today? And do you see that evolving over time? And if so, how? I, I'm absolutely. I think it's actually critical. And in some ways, it's a bit of a reversion to the more historic model where the uh, primary care physician, the pediatrician in this case, actually was a lot more active in the early stages of diagnosis and determination on the patient. Um, I think there's been a trend over the last probably 30 plus years where uh, the referrals were done much earlier, but we have a problem. We have a limited workforce in genetics and rare disease. Um, average wait times at US uh, genetics programs tend to run in excess of six months. And in particular, if you're dealing with something in a newborn disease or something, um, you know, that's simply too long. So we need to develop, well, let's say, patterns of behavior. So things where if you have a patient falling into this sort of series of clinical presentation, here's a workup where you can get things started. You can involve the more specialized group, you know, if everything doesn't come back normal or things like that. A good case in point, um, non-syndromic um, developmental delay. In other words, a patient who physically looks normal that has delays in development. There's certain things you tend up doing repetitively to these patients. Um, is there a reason why you can't push that back some to the primary care provider? Now, the downside of that is a lot of the testing that's done requires a lot of explanation for the family. You know, what are you doing? What's going on? Things like that. Um, there's a lot of different efforts. Our effort is we actually put out a series of short videos families can watch on their phones and things like that to explain what is exome testing, what is genome testing, what's a microarray, uh, little short vignettes. But the idea is to empower primary care giver to initiate that workup um, easier, sooner, and probably with a lower activation energy. So they're more likely to kind of go ahead and get those things moving. So. I think if we don't move some of it back into the primary care field, the field's going to continue to struggle because we create a bottleneck uh, for patients to have access to diagnosis. And then one of the things I think Rady, uh, the Rady Institute's done so well is by more universally applying um, high-end genetic sequencing to almost every patient in a nursery or in a nursery environment, irregardless of who's seeing them. You know, you don't make the geneticist uh, that choke point anymore. You're going to end up increasing the diagnostic rate. Um, not everyone will agree with me on that. My wife, who's a pediatrician, does, so that's good. I think the other thing about, about the primary care physician is that actually 
a lot of the problems which are most important for patients with rare disorders are not things which we as rare disease experts are very helpful in. A lot of the time, the things my patients ask me are things like, how can I help my child who has anxiety about leaving the house? Because, and you know, I may, have, I may have done a genomic test which showed they had some wonderful disorder, but I don't know how to help them with their child's anxiety about leaving the house. I'm the worst person to get to give them that advice. And actually for, for, for all physicians to feel the confidence that patients with rare disorders often have common problems, which are commonly and best dealt with locally by people who are experienced in dealing with those problems, whatever they arise from, and just not feeling, oh, well, that patient's got a rare disease, so I mustn't, you know, I mustn't get involved, I might hurt them, or I, might, I, might, I don't understand about mitochondrial pathways, so I mustn't get involved. It's not about mitochondrial pathways, it's about, it's about what is affecting that person's quality of life right now. And I would say that nearly always a general practitioner in the UK is going to have a much more sensible opinion about the thing which is causing the patient the most problem today than I am. And I would love all my colleagues in medicine to have more confidence about that and not to feel that I know a lot of things that they don't know because they know an awful lot more things that I don't know. I would say we have a bad habit in the field of genetics of maybe over mystifying what we do sometimes, which tends to make our colleagues in more general medicine a little more reluctant uh, to dive in. Yeah. And that shouldn't be the case. Yeah, I, I would rephrase the question a little bit. Uh, to me, the next major step is frontline physicians, right? So it's, it's not actually general practitioners uh, primary care pediatricians, it's frontline uh, physicians. How do we move from, you know, this very narrow section of, of medical geneticists, biochemical geneticists, who are the gurus today, and a subset of molecular neurologists. I mean, I broaden it out. So all subspecialists are familiar with this, all frontline uh, uh, pediatricians. Um, that's the thing. How do you get a cardiologist to be really good at knowing cardiac genetic conditions and being comfortable with genome sequencing results and how to involve that in care? The same with a hepatologist and a pulmonologist and a neonatologist, right? That, that's the next crux. Because as Marshall says, we're going we're gonna to bury our medical genetics colleagues with, with overwork unless we figure this out. And the key to that is clearly education and not education about this is what meiosis is and this is what adenine is. It's that kind of edu education is completely unnecessary for the vast majority of people dealing with patients with genetic disorders. The, the kind of just in time um, ish, you know, pitfalls of the things that you're going to encounter with your patients is the kind of education that we that we need. And Health Education England has done a huge amount of work on just-in-time resources, and they have the, the Genomics Education Programme website um, has a lot of free resources. Um, they've just done a new um, animation of, um, of how, what are the clinician inputs into the process of filtering down your variants in a genome. So which things can you not impact, like what's common and what's coding, what's not coding, which things can you impact? Like, if you tell us that the wrong people in the family have the disorder, then we will miss the answer. And if you don't tell us in detail what your patient has, then we will miss the answer. So what are the things that you can do as a physician to 
give the inputs to the process, which will then lead to the right output. And those, those sorts of, you know, there's all sorts of jargon that is completely irrelevant to that thought process, but the education for that thought process and the access for clinicians who aren't sure to ask to come and just ask the experts until they feel more confident, I think is, is really, really important to, as, as we've all said, to making this more, a more equitable system for all the very large numbers of patients who have, particularly for the, I mean, I see a lot of patients with polycystic kidney disease, for example, there are a lot of patients with polycystic kidney disease and they all have medical needs associated with their genetic condition and there are not enough geneticists in the world to, to do that and increasingly renal physicians are doing a fantastic job with it and the geneticists only get involved in a minority of situations where there is um, where there's a particular complexity or a reproductive question or other particular points in it in the lifetime of a patient but actually it's 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 by far best managed in as part of the routine care of the patient and the education there is is the key um if, if any of you are interested, there's a free service we put up. It's called uh, Bear Genes. It's an app on both the Apple and Android stores that have these short videos explaining around testing. They're designed for patients because one of the things we found too, when you uh, start talking to someone about genetic issues and conditions, you'll get a piece of bad news out and everything the family will hear after that is kind of womp, 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 womp. And so what we wanted to do is provide tools where the family can look at them on their own time in their own space, and also as a tool for our community physicians. So they don't have to spend the time explaining what's a microarray, what's an exome, what's a, a this and that. And I think there's a lot of good tools. The NHS has done a great job with that. This is uh, one of the efforts we're moving out more and more in the US, things like that. So I think as these things continue to improve in quality, it will continue to empower the community. I think we've had a very insightful discussion, which I think could continue on much longer, but we'll, we'll give uh, the chance to answer a few maybe audience questions. Um, first of all, I think we had, we had a comment, which is, which is nice as well, um, saying, I appreciate the expertise and perspective of your panelists uh, and the focus on phenotype. Sometimes I feel alone in my focus on phenotype. So I was, it was affirming to hear uh, the comments in that regard. And sort of the next question falls uh, into that uh, into that sort of similar topic as well, and I guess a little bit part of our uh, earlier discussion. Uh, the question is asking all of you um, about the Mondo ontology um, and sort of about it, its goal to bring together other ontologies to have greater coverage. And could you speak more to war? Um, could you speak more about I guess first whether you use that ontology or have you heard of it um, and what hinders the use of AI for labeling um, with, within these hierarchical ontologies? I'm gonna let Stephen and Ellen go first on that one, <laughs> on Mondo. We, we don't use Mondo routinely in, our di in the diagnostic context. Um, I'm aware that, you know, that others, others do, but it's not something that we're routinely, we've routinely implemented at the moment. I think over the next decade, we'll start to get this right. And so I think Mondo, Monarch Initiative, uh, similar efforts in uh, Europe are pioneering and wonderful and to be encouraged. But we have an issue and that is that healthcare is a multi-trillion dollar business. And so 
it's going to be a long, hard slog moving over into something like this. Um, so that's it's kind of like sticking your head into um, the washing machine. Um, you know, you are brave people who are undertaking that work. It's needed. Thank yeah. you. I'm going to remove my head from the washing machine now. I've got to agree. We're, we're not actually using Mondo. These are the things that need to come. I was going to say wood chipper rather than washing machine, but I think both of them kind of work the same there. Um, the problem is, you know, not only do you have to do these things across um, the span of all the, all the types of data you can capture, you've also got to do them across different languages, across different medical systems, uh, different, you know, approaches to medicine in general. The second half of that question was around um, what hinders the use of AI for labeling uh, these hierarchical ontologies. I come back, um, Greg Moore, who's the chief medical officer in Microsoft, and I have a lot of conversations around this. And um, we tend to stick more with the machine learning, but I know that that can be interchangeably used with AI. And the problem is, is without having a depth of data to build a model on top of, a depth of consistent data that is highly reproducible, it's very hard to get a lot of meaningful use out of a, a either a machine learning or an AI type approach. And I think, you know, if you look at some of the efforts around using AI in the cancer field, um, what was it someone said about uh, IBM's Watson was it's been fired from every job they gave it. Um, it's, you know, very good at accumulating this information, but when you're trying to actually prioritize it, uh, it's very hard to get something that you can take to a patient's bedside and use to determine what you're going to do. It's just not, we just don't really have the database backgrounds there. So I think that's why these efforts are so important. Here's the issue. Sorry, Alan, I'll just go really quick. The issue is these things need to be built for a purpose. What is the solution? What, what is it you're trying to solve? You know, because the solution you build will be directed at the problem. And I, I guess that's what I'm missing a little bit. What is the application that we will solve uh, with a, another ontology that we don't solve today, you know? And yeah, my other observation was just going to be that if you show the same patients to five different doctors, you will get a non-overlapping set of phenotype terms in any ontology that you use. Um, and so you've got that sort of, you know, relatively large confidence intervals around your input, which means that, you know, you, you need a lot of data before you can really start to um, start to compensate for the degree of variation in your input. And we've we've experimented with both models, the use of completely free HPO versus the use of set models where people select. And the great thing about a set model is that at least you're picking from the same terms. So you get much more shared data across, um, across you know, particularly where there's quite a lot of redundancy in the ontology, which there is in bits of HPO. Um, you get you get a more consistent data set if you suggest terms, but you also skew your data set because you're, you make it less likely that people will add in more HPO terms and more likely that somebody will pick something that's sort of roughly right rather than going to look for the thing that's more precisely right. So I think um, I think neither, you know, both models have downsides um, and the inputs of these things, the, the input of phenotype terms is not an exact science, um, which doesn't help with the outputs. I like to call it, we kind of use a model, we call it the crawl, walk, run model. 
I definitely we're in the crawl stage right now, I would say with our ontologies. Uh, one of the reasons we're trying to use as much imagery as we can for doing our phenotypic descriptions is theoretically it should be a little more objective. Is it in reality? We'll, we'll see with time, it, it would appear to be. So I think anytime you can use something where you've got a, a, you know, a measurement, an image capture, things like that, you're probably gonna have a little more reproducibility than a, um, did the head look funny? You know, however, however you describe that, you know, what's brachycephaly to one may not be brachycephaly to another. Or what I do is I have one of my colleagues is in his mid seventies and has been doing genetics for over 40 years as a clinician. So I go ask him what it looks like. I, I want to uh, thank you all for joining us. I think the discussion has really, really been very interesting. Um, as I said before, I think we could go on for much longer than, than we already have. And it's been, uh, I, I learned a lot today and I'm sure that people at the audience have as well. Um, but we've, we've pretty much come to time now. So I just wanted to let people in the audience know that once the webinar ends, you'll see a feedback link in your browser. Uh, you can take a few minutes to offer us feedback about uh, this, this episode. You'll also receive an email with a feedback link in case you missed the, the, the message after the webinar ends. The email will also include information about our next uh, speaker series on October 6th, where we'll be tackling uh, tackling the topic of how to navigate whole genome sequencing in the clinic. Um, at Phenotips, we're passionate about transforming genetics workflows through technology. We've developed tools for deep phenotyping, phenotype-powered genetic analysis, as well as many other tools for genetic workflows. If you have a challenge that you're trying to solve or you're working towards making your department more efficient, we'd love to chat. You can speak with one of us uh, after this uh, webinar, we'll stay on for a few minutes or reach out to us through our email, hello at phenotips.com. Um, again, remember to tune in uh, to our next webinar, Navigating Whole Genome Sequencing in the Clinic on October 6th. Um, and once again, a very uh, heartfelt thank you to our guests today, Drs. Thomas, Summer, Kingsmore, and everyone for tuning in. Thank you very much. And uh, We'll hope to see you again soon. Take care.